Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 12, and we're at the point where Jan van Riebeek and 88 men and women had set up the refreshment station to provide fruit, vegetables, and meat to passing VOC fleets. As we heard last episode, the fort would take at least a year to complete. The Dutch had arrived in the Cape at precisely the wrong time. It was autumn, and the Mediterranean climate meant the coming winter would be cold and wet. Worse, the Khoikhoi had left their settlements on the Cape Flats heading up the east coast to areas which were more sheltered for the winter, and Van Riebeck's men suffered as meat was not available. They were reduced to eating penguins, seals, and birds of different kinds to stay alive. So, by eight months, and despite Jan van Riebeck's determination being tested, earthworks had been built, gardens were laid out, and seeds had been sown, and he'd even managed to harvest the first vegetables. This was deceptive because when the first large Dutch fleet passed by in March 1653, the ships themselves were obliged to contribute several tons of rice together with salted meat and biscuit to the hungry garrison. And yet, some fresh meat was made available for the fleet along with some fresh vegetables. That by itself was quite an achievement. The Khoikhoi had largely left the Cape Flats for winter, so locating cattle to buy had been a problem. Soon, though, things improved as the Khoikhoi returned by December 1652 and were happy to trade their animals for tobacco and copper. The Soldanos seek to show us all the friendship they can, wrote Van Riebeck on December 8th. But the Khoikhoi then moved on a few days later and the Dutch fort commander seemed to forget his orders as he began to consider other ways of obtaining these cattle. The least complicated, mused Van Riebeck, was merely to seize the cattle from the unsuspecting Khoikhoi who always arrived to trade unarmed. Then he'd pack them off to India in irons as slaves, he wrote. But this was counter to the VOC policy, and he regretfully noted that he would take no such action, at least not until further instructions. This obscured the fact that the biggest troublemakers during the first year were the Dutch mercenaries, sailors and soldiers he had hired for this adventure. An apparently deranged soldier by the name of Martinus Das stole the carpenter's tools and food. When he was tracked down, he pleaded to be shot. Dutch soldiers, who were acting as herdsmen, were also regarded as pretty useless, allowing the cattle to roam further afield where they were stolen by the Khoikhoi. These soldiers were punished with a hundred blows of the butt-end of a musket. The Dutch were under orders not to learn the Khoikhoi language, so things did not remain peaceful between the inhabitants of the VOC fort in Table Bay and the local community. The Khoikhoi moved with the seasons and burnt grass to ensure fresh new growth. Van Riebeck then began to suspect they were holding back, waiting for the English ships. Not speaking a word of Khoi or sand did not help. These English appeared to pay more for the goods traded than the Dutch, which was a matter of concern. None of the newcomers could grasp Khoi Khoi and were forbidden to learn, as I said, since Dutch was supposed to be the only language used on the station. They were worried about the soldiers and sailors going native, to use the somewhat insulting phrase bandied about by colonials. Absolute reliance was placed on a few of the Khoikhoi who learned Dutch and English. When the Dutch first began to show an interest in the Cape, they had met two men by the name of Klaus Das and Doman who acted as interpreters, as well as a little girl who was called Kurtoa. She was given the western name of Eva and later called Tolkien, which is Dutch for female interpreter. Tolkien was accompanied by her uncle Hedy, the beachcomber, 
who spoke some broken English. Harry, or Harry, was the leader of a small band of strandloopers, numbering two dozen, perhaps. Harry had sailed on board an English ship to the east and learnt that language during the voyage. The English then nicknamed him King Harry. In September 1652, Van Riebeck hired a young Khoikhoin boy with the consent of his parents to live inside the stockade with the specific aim of learning Dutch. As we'll hear over the course of a few podcasts, the Dutch had to accept Harry's version of Khoikhoi affairs until things changed for the worse between the unofficial translator and the Europeans. Van Riebeck's men had found three different clans wandering with their sheep and cattle on the Cape Peninsula. The Strandloopers, or to be more accurate, the Gorenghatona, they were a tiny clan of men and women who walked the beaches along the peninsula collecting food from the sea. The second group were those who Van Riebeck referred to as the Carp Men, or the Gorenghatklas, and there were around 600 warriors this group could call upon. The third group were the Koras, or Gorenghatklas, who were called the Tobacco Thieves, and they numbered around 6,000. There were other clans Van Riebeck became aware of over the course of the first year, including the Tranotklas and the Hesetklas to the east. The strongest of the local clans of Khoikhoi were the Trotrotkos, who lived under the chiefs called Gonema and Udosia, who lived up the west coast in the vicinity of Sultana Bay. Then there were the little Greek Rikos, who could be found around the Udifans River inland, and further inland, the great Greek Rikos and the Maquas roamed the highlands. I stress this is the Dutch version of who lived inland. We'll hear more about them in coming podcasts. So at first his orders to the men of the garrison were marked by nervousness. These Khoi Khoi must not be confronted in any way, even if they stole. The Dutch should be armed at all times, but not stray from the fort for fear of massacre. No one was allowed to trade with the Khoi Khoi privately under pain of dismissal. They should be treated kindly. By April 14, 1653, Jan van Riebeck drafted the first report back to the VOC, and he was in a dilemma. After his comments three years previously about how wonderfully verdant the Cape was and how he was the best man for the job of setting up a refreshment station, he was now obliged to retract and to offer delicately phrased excuses for failing to have set up a fully functioning operation. He grumbled in his report that the first outbound large fleet heading from Amsterdam to Batavia had not stopped at the Cape as promised. Worse, the Khoi Khoi had rejected much of the tobacco they'd stored for use in bartering as of inferior quality. The Khoi Khoi were connoisseurs of tobacco and were now driving a hard bargain in exchange for their important cattle. Van Riebeck ended his first report with a passionate plea to be allowed to leave the fairest cape, which he no longer regarded as one of good hope. I will now move to conclude most humbly, respectfully, and earnestly pray that your honours will think of removing me hence to India and to some better and higher employment. Then he let rip with what surely must have been pent-up hatred for the Khoikhoi. I may earn promotion for, among these dull, stupid, lazy, stinking people, little address is required as among the Japanese and other precise nations thereabouts. He ranted about how the brains of the most brilliant Dutchmen were challenged by the Tonkinese or the Vietnamese and the Japanese, while these Khoi Khoi were clearly testing his skills as a would-be diplomat. Then, just to remind their honours, the VOC here in 17, he requested his pay to rise to the level accorded as a commander. He was commanding the garrison, but receiving pay as a mid-level merchant. You see, the VOC was purposefully keeping the Cape as a backwater in its endeavours, and that was clearly upsetting Van Riebeck. The head in 17 ignored his bleating. Then a few weeks later, on the 4th of May, 1653, he tried another tack. 
He had heard from a German priest that sea communication could easily be established up the east coast of southern Africa. 750 miles up the coast, the priest had claimed that much gold, ivory, ebony, and naked Africans or slaves are to be had at a very cheap rate. Von Rebeck wanted to sell to this place to indulge in some treasure hunting. The year in 17 duly replied in the negative. What Van Riebeck did not know at this time was that he was destined to spend another nine years in the Cape. For the man who clearly hated Africa, hated the Khoikhoi, hated the fairest Cape, that must have been a prison sentence. Harry, the Strandlooper translator, continued giving his usual advice, which as usual appeared to be peppered with exaggerations and untruths. The Dutch still hadn't figured out that they needed to understand the region properly or face disaster, and disaster was imminent. Not only did the VOC refuse to send more supplies and demanded that the garrison become more productive, but trading with the Khoikhoi became more difficult. The Dutch were in a rush and the Khoikhoi had spent thousands of years doing exactly what they were doing now on the Cape Flats, living a life of ease and raiding each other when the opportunity arose. And because the Dutch were now part of the landscape, raiding was part of the plan. Then in October 1652, a Khoikhoi youngster by the name of David Janssen, who was in charge of the company herd, was killed and all 44 cattle stolen. It became apparent that their Strandlooper friend Harry was behind the murder and theft. Van Riebeck became apoplectic, and the ungrateful Harry, he wrote, was always acknowledged as the chief of his little tribe. We fed him from our table as a great friend in our house, clothed him in Dutch attire. He had now made off for the entire VOC herd. There was only one thing to do, and Van Riebeck discovered he was unable to take that action. Forbidden by the company's original instructions to attempt any retaliation, the garrison went wild with frustration. The council managing the garrison would have voted unanimously to order a punitive expedition to seize the cattle and enslave the Strandloopers. Eventually, they were given permission early in 1653 to recover the cows, and an armed party was dispatched in the direction of False Bay, to recover these cattle by force if necessary. It was the first example of such an expedition, but many would follow. Often the expeditions would be sent out because the local Khoikhoi were at war with each other and the Dutch needed to secure more cattle and sheep further afield. Van Riebeck began to increase his knowledge of the distant people on the highlands and driven by a mistaken belief they were hiding silver and gold and precious stones. While the prime incentive to explore southern Africa was really to secure fresh meat, the stories that circulated at the time were full of romantic tales about Monimotapa and the Safala gold trade. At first, the Dutch presented little threat to the Khoikhoi on the peninsula, who eagerly engaged in trade with them and bartered livestock quite happily. They ignored the Dutch infatuation with precious stones and other goods. Then the more powerful Tototwa began moving their herds closer to the fort, which was regarded as a provocation by the Gohakwa and the Gohakwa. The Strandlopers, the Gohakwana, were unable to do much about anyone and were virtually ignored. Van Riebeck sent exploring parties beyond False Bay up the east coast as well as where Malmesbury is today. The pressure on land had not begun, but matters would change fundamentally in four years' time, 1657, when the first three burgers were loosed on the Cape. These nine men and their families were going to have a massive effect on the history of the region, as you'll hear. We need to take a step back and to look at what was happening across southern Africa in 1652. I explained last episode how the Amakosa in the vicinity of the Mbashi River, between today's Port St. John's and East London, had begun to expand southwards. The Amakosa believed themselves to be the common descendants of a legendary hero called Koza, who lived many centuries before the coming of the Europeans. As I explained in previous podcasts, 
Their language had become infused with the cliques of the Khoikhoi and San over hundreds of years of contact. The Amatkosa were related to the farmers who pushed into the coastal lowlands starting around 200 AD. The land where they lived was called the Amatkoseni, the place of the Kosa people. It's an extensive summer rainfall region stretching along the southern seaboard of the African continent between the Mbashi River and the Sundays River. It features the looming Amatoli and Winterberg mountain ranges, covered by a thick forest and bush to the north, and to the south, the lush coastal vegetation grows right up to the sweeping white sand beaches of the Indian Ocean. Rivers and streams flow erratically down to the ocean from the mountains and the hilly uplands, and the Amakosa preferred to settle in the river valleys that had the best soil and pasturage. It was along the westernmost reaches of their territory that they came into contact later with the Khoikhoi and the people they would call the Amabulu. That was really only by 1700, 50 years after Van Riebeek set up his refreshment station. The Amabulu by then had begun spreading eastwards from the Cape Peninsula, pushing aside the San and other Khoikhoi people already living between the two regions. The Amabulu were the white men, the Dutch pastoralists like the Khoikhoi and the Amakosa themselves, and then of course the English arrived. But that's our story in the future. The first accounts of the Amakosa that were written down came from European sailors shipwrecked along that dangerous coast. The Amakosa had settled in the area by the 1500s at least, living in the scattered homesteads dotting the picturesque countryside. By the 1500s, the Amatkosa homesteads took on the standard form that would persist right up to modern times. Each homestead accommodated the members of the family along with their dependents, all living under the command of a married man. The status and authority was derived from a man's genealogy, with the oldest man the leader. His wealth came from inherited herds of cattle. So the power rested not only on these riches, but on the man's right to claim the best fields to allocate to members of his homestead for cultivation. He would also make decisions about which cattle to lend his relatives and when, and had control over social relationships, such as marriage. A homestead traditionally was built on the top of a ridge and facing the rising sun, the east. Usually there was shelter nearby and a stream, and the ridge was always well drained. Commoners' homesteads consisted of 8 to 15 domed beehive-shaped huts. A chief had as many as 50 of these huts in his settlement. The building technique was a framework of branches which would be bent over a central point and plastered with clay and cattle dung, and then thatched with long grass. In stark contrast to Europeans who began washing up on their shores in the 1500s, Kosa men went about virtually naked with a penis gourd and greasing themselves with oil and herbs to create a glowing sheen. Young girls mixed grease with red ochre to beautify themselves, and young initiates would also rub this ochre on their bodies. As we've heard, ochre is an ancient product found in archaeological digs stretching back tens of thousands of years in southern Africa. Some of the Khoza living further west adopted the skin apron worn by the Khoikhoi, while unmarried women wore a small apron in the front and married women a small apron and larger at the rear. The Amatkosa left their head bare except for minor chiefs and military officers and men who distinguished themselves in battle, and these men wore the feathers of a blue crane as a badge of honour. Women would also wear buckskin caps, while both sexes would adorn themselves in ornaments of various kinds. Necklaces were made of reed, wood, shell and roots, as well as beads of unbaked clay. Others wore metal or east coast glass beads traded from the Arabs, and then the Europeans far away in Mozambique. These goods would journey along trading networks to the smallest settlements in southern Africa. The Amatkosa would also wear iron, copper and brass bangles. 
Men preferred necklaces of animal claws and teeth or ivory armbands. Ivory in particular was one of the most prized gifts from a chief and indicated a person of high standing. During the winter, men and women donned cloaks of well-worked supple bullock hide with the skin side out and coloured in red ochre. They also herded fat-tailed sheep, which were the descendants of Asiatic mountain sheep from the steppes of Central Asia, and goats, which originated in southwestern Asia. The Amatkoza homesteads had dogs, which had become part of African family life thousands of years before and originating in North Africa. But their favourite animals were their cattle. These migrated into southern Africa along with the first farmers. There were two main strains of cattle, one known as the Nguni breed, stemming from the humpless, long-horned boss Taurus, originally domesticated in Egypt and West Africa. There were also the humped and short-horned boss Indicus, first found in the Near East and Indus Valley about 7,000 years ago and introduced into Africa by Arab settlements along the Horn and Swahili coast of modern Somalia. So it's important to note that the role cattle and pastoralism was going to play in the initial contact between Europeans and Africans. As Jan van Riebeek and his men continued to try and increase the VOC company herds, while the Kogkoi continued to drive a hard bargain. Next week, we'll deal with the start of a new era as free burgers begin farming in the Cape, and we'll take a look at the first few years of this Tavern of the Seas. At the same time, we'll return to inland southern Africa and catch up on what had been going on through the 1600s. So please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time, or head off to the site desmondlatham.blog for maps and interesting tidbits, or to email me there. You can also message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.